Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop, joined alongside me as always, Shelby Kang. Shelby, I was sitting here and I was just like waiting for the podcast to start and I was like, oh yeah, I'm the one that starts the podcast. Yeah, I know. It would just feel almost wrong for me to do the intro now that we've done it. The listeners would all of a sudden just be like, what's happened to Tyler? (laughs) Something terrible, I assume. Oh yeah, but... um, I know now this is, I think, our uh, 111th podcast. One, one, one. Make a wish. Yeah. Have you ever heard that before? Like the, the, when the word, the numbers are all consecutive, you're supposed to make a wish? I've heard of 1111. Okay. Um, but, oh my goodness, if we get to 1111 podcasts. We're either doing something right or we're wasting a lot of our time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Which so. I bet a lot of publishers can probably relate to. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think we were on 35 when we started. So it's been a long time now. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I wanted to kick off with was uh, or is uh, Black Friday and our ad revenue index. So we've got a sort of tradition or a habit, at least in the office, to always check uh, the online or the ad revenue index. And this year's Black Friday was just shy of breaking the record. So. Isn't isn't that interesting? I was so uh, curious as to what was going to happen this year because pretty much since we've monitored it, even before we had the ad revenue index being public, we would notice that uh, ad revenue uh, rates or ad rates that publishers were paid hit a record every year on Black Friday. And it was kind of like Moore's Law every year new record. And this year, just because of, uh, I think there's a lot of debate about what what potentially is causing ad rates in general to be, uh, I would say stagnant, um, but not necessarily growing like we've seen in years past, um, whether it's the privacy stuff with Apple or, you know, any number of other things. Um, I was curious to see how things panned out. And sure enough, Black Friday came and I saw in the index, like it's really hard to tell immediately looking at the, you know, this year and last year, if it was going to be 199 and I scrolled over and I saw 99 and I was like, wow, that's crazy because it wasn't the record, but the 99 infers that it was probably just short of it. So it was probably pretty close. Yeah. And then are there any other things besides privacy and different data changes that you think may have caused this? I mean, you have first price auction. Let's not forget that's a major uh, change in the ecosystem. We've also seen a lot of conglomeration in ad tech. Um, You're seeing a lot less fraud through things like ads.txt and things along those lines. Um, I'm I'm not sure it's one thing necessarily in particular. it could be a, a whole host of different things, but uh, I would say in general, um, we are seeing digital spending continue to increase. Um, our economy is in an interesting position to where um, we've the economy's been doing really well for a long period of time, and pretty much everyone has been predicting for years that there would be some kind of um, downturn at some point. Um, so we may be seeing kind of the pre-effects of something like that as well. Um, but I would say just in general for digital publishers, it's not... I I wouldn't panic. Right. Um, The next thing I wanted to talk about is Bloomberg News, uh, which is hurting their brand by using one-sided political coverage. So the editor-in-chief at Bloomberg News has told staff through a memo 
that they'll continue the tradition of not investigating Mike Bloomberg, who is the owner of the news outlet. Um, and he's also announced plans to run for president. So they'll also avoid investigating his family, his uh, charitable foundation, and actually any of his Democratic rivals. Um, but finding dirt on Trump is still fair game. So although they won't investigate Mike Bloomberg or any of his ca uh, rivals, they will still aim to stick to fact-based reporting and report on who's winning and losing, different policies and the consequences. And they'll also carry out polls and interviews with candidates while tracking their campaigns, including Mike's. Um, so the author of this opinion piece says that Bloomberg is failing to kind of do the breaking news that's really the heart of real journalism and that it's the one-sided uh, or it's one-sided to permit reporters to investigate the political rival without properly vetting other candidates. So what's your take on that? How do you feel like this affects other digital publishers? Yeah, so without having to take take a political stance uh, <laughs> in the midst of that, I would just say, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's the... It's the position of the publisher lab that should I ever run for office or uh, be indicted on federal charges for any crimes that the publisher lab will not comment, nor will it investigate <laughs> said crimes. Um, but yeah, I think that this is actually a good thing for digital publishers because I think one of the, the issues and one of the challenges uh, and problems with the space right now is conglomeration at the top. Um, I don't think it's a good thing for most publishers. And I also think it makes those conglomerates uh, less agile, less profitable. Um, you think about a healthcare system, you know, the larger and larger that a medical facility gets, the more bloated it gets, the more administrators. Um, it's just how bureaucracy gets, they get less efficient. And um, I think for publishers, you can look at something like this and say, that that flaw that was created by, you know, like potentially um, harming their jour journalistic integrity in, in some cases, um, it's an opportunity for other publishers. And I think that that's the great value of the internet for all of us. Uh, I think uh, everybody appreciates the fact that it is open and free, allows people to communicate for all its downfalls, like the internet does give everyone a voice. And because of that, um, Publishers that are interested in covering politics or pretty much anything for that matter um, have this advantage over conglomerates and legacy media places because people may see them as untrustworthy or uh, biased or whatever. Even if it's non-political related, there's I'm sure that there are people that are on one side of a political spectrum that will read this information and say, well, I'm not going to read anything from Bloomberg. Um, right. Yeah, I think there's a fine line between um, like catering your content to your audience. So if you know that your audience is very democratic in this case, that's one thing. But uh, I think this kind of violates that line of transparency of, you know, really just cherry picking the information that you share. Um, but there's a difference, right? Yeah. Between like catering content um, and then, you know, catering journalism. So journalism in of itself is something that's, you know, supposed to be, you know, like I think all of us have like kind of like a put it on a pedestal, like the idea of it. 
and would say like it's not meant to be biased or catered right. towards a certain demographic, that would be something that maybe falls into a different category. I think that's a struggle that we all have right now is is where do you get news that maybe isn't um, catered or biased or something along those lines. Um, and so when something is being sold as journalism, I think people really struggle with it when they know for a fact that it has a certain flavor to it. Yeah. Where do you get your news? Or do you even keep up with a lot of like news going on? Or <laughs> I, it's, at, the, at the risk of alienating our audience, I'll just share that one of my favorite places to get the news is uh, I like to follow comedians on Twitter and then usually whatever they're making fun of, uh, I can glean from their their kind of humor what what's probably actually going on. So yeah, a very s- satirical way of following the news, but that truly is some of the best ways that I get my news these days. I think that's actually a really good strategy because otherwise... If you're really following the news closely, it can be a little bit depressing or just upsetting. So actually, I might start start doing that. That seems like a pretty good way. There love- we go. Now we're going to have all kinds of uh, backdoor political comedian influencers. And <laughs> that'll be the, the scandal next year. Yeah, maybe we'll find some sort of comedian to be on our podcast one day. Um, the next thing I have on deck today is what food media is doing right to find sustainable models. So this article is from DigiDay. Um, And if you haven't noticed, food media is really having a moment right now. So just this year, the New York Times cooking subscription business passed 250,000 subscribers. um, And that was done in less than two years. Bon Appetit's YouTube channel has 4.7 million subscribers. And by next year, the majority of Time Out Group's revenue will be driven by its uh, food hall business. So they opened up like a um, brick and mortar food hall. Um, and lastly, Food 52 derives fif- or 75% of its revenue from sources other than advertising. So while food kind of has this universal appeal, everybody eats food. I think most people love food. <laughs> uh, or maybe I'm just projecting on <laughs> everybody else. Um, there are lessons in these examples for most media seeking more sustainable models. Um, So the first strategy is to invest in talent. So Bon Appetit's influencer treatment um, of its editors was a deliberate decision by their editor-in-chief when he joined in 2011. Um, He said that everything everything had to be from the minds and bellies of Bon Appetit editors. I wanted the users and listeners to feel as though they were traveling with us, cooking with us, and hanging out with us. Um, The next strategy to embrace is... uh, taking on as many video platforms as possible. So YouTube and IGTV are obviously big players in the video game, um, but both Bon Appetit and Eater have OTT streaming channels. So Bon Appetit launched its channel on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and Apple TV in February, and the average watch time on Bon Appetit's streaming channel is more than an hour per person. And I think I'm probably one of those people <laughs> who watches at least an hour Um, Almost all their videos are like almost an hour to begin with. Um, And then the last strategy is events. So the Infactuation, which is a restaurant review publisher, um, and they're also in the midst of relaunching Zagat, hosted 65 events last year, which threw 17,000 attendees. Um, the Times, Eater, and Bon Appetit all hosted events in New York City, and they all plan to host an event next year. And then 
it's actually funny it mentioned that the Eater drew some mixed reviews for its sold out event um, because they actually had a, a shortage of food during one of their lunches. Oh. And it's a food that event. That's strategic. <laughs> so um, what are your thoughts on that? I know that events and things like that aren't really maybe as possible for some publishers than others. But I, I think, well, I think I it is sort of kind of like one of those tools in the toolbox. It's maybe not like your primary tool, although it is for some publishers. We talked about that before. Um, events can be a way, if you have a good audience that's really passionate about a particular subject, you can organize events here that you kind of can play that part. Um, you can also open up brick-and-mortar stores. Um, food is a really interesting one. It's, um, you know, we've talked before on the show about... Uh, Hot ones. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously. But so that's a really good example. Um, uh, another channel that we've talked about on here, Good Mythical Morning, um, they reported a while back that their food, their videos that include food-based things, so like the, the cast members eating stuff, get about twice as many views as anything else that they publish. And so it's amazing to me just what percentage of like YouTube success is built on, even if it's not like hot ones, the direct... Um, the direct idea is, you know, food-based, whatever. It's like they are, that was like the hack for getting that interview show off the ground is like including food. Um, yeah, so the fascination that uh, everyone has with food has sort of been exposed through the internet. Um, video is a particularly interesting one because anybody can essentially become like a food quote-unquote publisher. Um, and it seems to be this like weird hack. Like you said, everybody likes to eat. Um You've got all the weird like uh, SM. What is it? MR SMR oh, ASMR ASMR oh, videos. Stuff. But there's all these like weird like things that people like. Some people like people whispering. Some like pe the sounds of things crunching. It's like yeah. there's these weird kind of niches that have kind of popped out. But food is one that is sort of universal. And so um, you are seeing a. I would say it's a great place to get ideas because that field is so competitive. When you think about you want to be a video publisher on food, you're competing with Bon Appetit, you're comp competing with the Food Network, you know, you're competing with, you know, um, these, you know, new niche so shows that have great production value. These conglomerates are launching stuff and buying stuff every day. Um, same thing with Google search results. Google a recipe now or Google something that's commonly made. You're going to find a, um, a rich snippet box at the top that does not provide results the way that it used to. Um, it's actually pretty depressing if you're a food publisher and you want to look at mobile results for con like just uh, Google strawberry shortcake on your mobile phone and take a look at what you see now. It's yeah. hard times for food publishers in that respect. So I would just say that um, if you are a food publisher, one of the things you really need to think about is do you really have an audience? because there's a really good chance you don't, and there's a lot of publishers who need to be honest with themselves about that. And the second piece is if you don't have an audience and they are just getting your content, like how do you create How do you create your audience? How do you make them your audience? Um, how do you make whatever it is you're providing them with, which is probably like recipes or food porn, if you will, like how do you build a more lasting relationship? I don't know that I've got great answers, but the one benefit of of trying to make an event work or some kind of like product work is the very act of making something like that work ties them to you even more. Right. Uh, you mentioned recipes in Rich Snippets, and I just have a, a short little anecdote. Uh, while we were in Paris, 
uh, I wanted to make ratatouille, so I looked up a while you were in Paris you wanted to make it yourself (laughs) yes so um I looked up a recipe and I like bought all the ingredients at the markets a bunch of vegetables and then we got back to we were staying at an Airbnb and we looked at the recipe again and we actually and this time we clicked on the link and we realized that the rich snippet (laughs) um, left out a long list of ingredients and stuff so as you publishers do. <laughs> at home are like see that's why you have to click yeah now you learn now i learn so i'll always click on a recipe now and yeah and it's it's interesting google actually gets that stuff wrong quite a bit uh and i don't just mean like um like not showing enough like they'll pull stuff into the boxes a lot of times that's not correct they're pulling it from the wrong spot um I follow uh, the Google search liaison, uh, Danny Sullivan, on um, on Twitter, and all day long people send him stuff, uh, and he's always just like, submit the question box, let us know. But there was one, uh, it was like somebody searched Christmas presents and the the products appearing in oh, the, yeah. I you, saw do you that. know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were some ver- really racy ones that were appearing at the top, so it was interesting. So, yeah, I think their solution to that was just to demonetize the query for Christmas. Yeah. So no ads would show up. Um, So that's one way to handle it. Uh, The last topic I have is just a stat um, from uh, Zenith. So 69% of media is to be traded programmatically in 2020 despite fraud and safety fears. Um, it also states that the programmatic ad spend is projected to exceed $100 billion for the first time in 2019. Um, so that's equivalent to 65% of market share. And in 2021, the growth will result in a total amount spent programmatically um, at one point or sorry, $147 billion, with 72% of all digital media being programmatic. So... Any thoughts on that? No surprise. Just wanted to give an update. We haven't really talked um, about stats in a while. We'll, we'll see. But I would say like those that are skeptical or those that even are trying to get an idea about the scale, um, you know, think back three years ago. If you were going to go get a haircut, if you were going to order food, if you were going to um, try to figure out uh, the time something opens or closes, um, you wouldn't necessarily inherently have this expectation that every one of those things you would, A, go to your phone as your first choice for doing those things um, on the internet, and uh, B, that you would have the expectation that it would be a surprise if you couldn't do those things, you know? Um, I'm always surprised if there's a restaurant that I want to order food from, like, you know, like takeout or something like that, and I don't have the ability to do it online now. Uh, it's weird, but that's the expectation. And I would say that people that buy and sell advertising, because someone like Google, someone like Facebook has made it so easy to buy advertising online and the interface is so, um, I guess, user-friendly in a lot of respects. A lot of people probably argue with me on that, but it, it, it really is. Um, it makes it to where um, that becomes the expectation if you're an advertiser or a marketer. Uh, I can't tell you how frustrated I get whenever I'm trying to figure out how to use uh, a new piece of marketing or ad technology to advertise and somebody wants me to fill out a form or like they they want to get in touch with me. I'm like, why can't I just do it? Like, why? why do I you don't need, need a demo. I just let me do it. I don't need it. an email exchange. Like, let me just get in there and, and poke around. And uh, I think that just um, more and more we're finding that um, there doesn't need to be this chain uh, of people, this stuff can get automated for for better or for worse, 
And so that expectation, I think, is also driving um, these projections. But uh, I would just say that in general, if you think that, you know, you're going to be able to change that or somebody is going to be able to change that, I, I don't think that that's right. Right. Well, that's all I have for this week. Is there anything going on in your side? Nothing. We are on the other side of Black Friday now, and um, everyone is being bombarded with advertising, and I think that it will lead to even more conversation about the fact uh, that people have a gross misunderstanding of what privacy means online, how advertisers use that information, and just the role that these platforms are playing uh, in the media. So I think that a lot of the concerns about privacy um, are actually being planted by parties like Apple or Google or Facebook. And um, it's I find it very interesting because for Apple, privacy is some uh, PR war that they're winning, I would say. Um, and that puts them in a very strong position with Google. So it is very interesting to me that Apple seems to have been the one uh, a little over a year ago that seems to have actually paid a lot of publications to cover this story. Um, and that's starting to emerge now. And so I would just say that um, that kind of momentum is unlikely to slow down. And I think that 2020 will actually probably look a lot different than what people think because of this. And at the beginning of this year, um, you could probably go back and listen to our podcast. I had a different opinion about it, but it, you can just see how things are changing. Right. Um, I think this we have one more episode uh, before we go on a little holiday hiatus. Um so I just want to give our listeners a heads up. I'd say we'd send you a best of episode, but I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> I hate those. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a bloopers one, like the worst of. My my Apple TV was like, you have a new episode of Saturday Night Live. Uh, sent it to me a couple days ago, and I looked at it, and it was like Thanksgiving Day episode, and it was like a best of. And I was like, it's not new. <laughs> just recycling old content. Nice try, NBC. Uh, all right, well... That's Thanks for it. listening. We want to thank everyone for joining us once again on another episode of The Publisher Lab.